Good morning, everybody. It's so good to be here with you in Frankston. If you're the type that likes to follow along in an actual Bible, Ruth chapter 1, I want to um, inspire us this morning, hopefully, with, uh, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, uh, the bravest person in the entirety of the Old Testament, and that is a lady named Ruth. I want to tell you her story, and hopefully we can find ourselves in this story, and the idea is, is that we can become unstuck. So I want to talk to you about unstick in your life. If you feel a bit stuck, um, there's some things we could do uh, to make that uh, better, and I want us to be inspired, and hopefully in the middle of all this, we'll, we'll find ourselves in the story, and we'll also uh, get some answers uh, for some things we're seeing in the news this week. And uh, trust me, that's coming as well. So uh, this is Ruth chapter 1. This is a tragic story that starts out, frankly, horrendously. If you could just bring that up for me. Um, here it comes. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Mayan and Kilion. And they were Ephratites from Bethlehem. And Judah, they went to Moab and lived there. Just before we go forward, just 10 seconds, feel that. Family of four doesn't have enough food to eat and has to go to another nation. That is tragic. That is stress. That's not just stress. That is distress. That is horrific. And then the more you read, the worse it gets. Watch what happens. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. So this is getting worse. The men in the situation are dying. And she was left with her two sons, and they married Moabite women. That's an absolute no-no, by the way. And one was named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they'd lived there about 10 years, both Mayan and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Just for a second, let's think about that for a second. Family of four doesn't have enough food to eat. They take refuge in another country. And through a series of unfortunate events, every man in the situation dies. In a world where women were not even considered people. In these days, a woman not attached to a man, a post-puberty woman not attached to a man, social historians called them liminal people. They, they weren't even, they, the ancient world didn't know what to do with women who weren't attached to men. The, the, the main point of the book of Ruth really is we got to get Ruth a man. Ruth needs a husband. Ruth, Ruth's got to have a man. Because in that world, women not attached to men were not even considered, they didn't know what to do with them. And, and unless you think that's far-fetched, it wasn't until 1919 that the United States of America thought women were smart enough to vote. That was less than 100 years ago. Okay? Now, they voted twice, and we had the Great Depression, so I'm not sure how all that worked out. But nonetheless, I, I'm joking, I'm joking. They, the, the, Great, okay. the Great Depression was caused by white men in suits allowing people to buy stocks on credit. Okay, there we go. So, but in this world, the last thing you wanted to be was a woman not attached to a man. That was tragic, tragic. You, you start adding up the things going wrong in this story, very daunting, very quickly. I just made a list that I see. Next slide. Um, first, it's the wrong time period. It's the time of the judges. That's the last time on earth you'd want to live. A time where people just did what was right in their own eyes. There was no judicial system. There was no 911, 000, There was no, the, the biggest, strongest people just dominated the weakest people. And you add to that the stress of not enough food. This is the walking dead, right? I, I sometimes hear Christians say things like this. Oh, Shane, can you believe how bad this world's getting? Compared to when? 
Read a history book. No way you'd want to live back then. No rights, no judicial system, just the the strongest people dominated the weakest people. No ibuprofen, no Panadol, no <coughs> no modern medicine at all. Like, are you would, would you rather be a woman today or in 1950 or 1850 or 1550? Flip, it's better today. Excuse me. <coughs> um, would you rather would you rather be black today or in 1950 or 1850 or 1550? I mean, is God done redeeming race relations? No. Is it better than it's been? Yes. Even me- like medicine especially. Would, would you rather have dental work today or in 1950 or 1850 or a colonoscopy? Would you rather have a colonoscopy today or in 1950 where they took something about like that? Everybody getting that picture right there? Everybody got that? Or in 1850 where they just sort of, you know... Vitamin salesmen, they tickle me. Vitamin, and I'm all for vitamins. I take vitamins. Vitamin, you know, some of these, oh, modern medicine, what a sham. Your ancient ancestors stayed potent until their old age. They died at 35. Of course, they stayed potent into their old age. It was just a bad time to live. You don't want to live back then. She's, she's in the wrong country, Moab. She's, a, she's the wrong gender. She's a female. Last time on earth you want to be a woman is the time of the judges during a famine. That's crazy stuff. She's the wrong race. She's a Moabite. Moabites were the most hated group of people to the Israelites. We'll talk about that in a second. And she's married to the wrong husband. She married an Israelite. But it wouldn't have been her choice. Listen, let me explain something about marriage, okay? Choice in marriage was only introduced about 300 years ago. It's a relatively new phenomenon. This is how marriage worked back then. If you were a woman, you had a period. Whatever your first period is, 12 or 13, whenever that happens. And this is what happened. You had your first period, and within six weeks, they'd already chosen a guy you've never met, and you were going to marry that guy with no choice of your own because his clan, his tribe, his family had weapons or money or resources or power, and they used their 13-year-old girls to barter protection. That's how it was. That's horrible, but that's how it was. So be careful with people who go, I stand for biblical marriage. Careful. Be more specific because that's in there as well, okay? This is not the time you wanted to live. And here's the thing. When you, just think about it naturally. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong husband, wrong race, wrong gender. If you woke up, if you woke up one day and you think, oh, I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time, married to the wrong person. What's that called? That's called stuck. That is stuck. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong spouse. That is stuck. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever woke up in the morning and thought, oh, Frankston, wrong place, wrong time. Have you ever woke up at 4.30 in the morning and thought, I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person? (laughs) You ever looked at your spouse at 4.30 in the morning because they woke you up because they're making noise? And they're making noise over and over and over again. You can't hardly cope. So you just look at them for a second, and then you just nudge them to get them to stop making the noise so maybe you could fall back asleep. And when you nudge them, they sort of move in such a way at just the perfect angle where they blow their morning breath all over you, you know? And you're like, oh, yeah, till death do us part, right? Wrong place, wrong time, wrong husband. And here's the thing with the Bible, right? Most stories in the Bible have a story underneath the story that make the story make more sense. And in most cases, the story underneath the story makes the story better. 
The problem with this story is when you know the story underneath the story, it doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. The the Israelite hatred of the Moabite race was so well documented and such an important part of Jewish history that it literally takes up four full chapters of the book of Numbers. Four full chapters. Now, because of time and relevance and just the fact that I'm a decent communicator, we're not going to read four full chapters of the Bible. I will tell the story, I'll tell it well, and then I'll show you some snippets. Here's what happened. Israelites come out of Egypt. They run into the Moabites. The Moabites are led by a king named Balak. Balak has three choices. Accept them and give them a piece of land. He doesn't do that. Attack them. He doesn't do that because they outnumbered him. Or door number three. Door number three was hire a foreign Aramite witch doctor worshiper of Ramon named Balaam to come and put a curse on the people. And the idea was, evidently he was very good at cursing people and he took money. He made his living cursing people. He hires this foreign witch doctor to come and curse the people. And the idea was, is if he curses them, now in a cursed state, I can attack them and they'll be weakened. Now, and that was the door he chooses. So he chooses a mixture of door number three and door number two. Door number three... Hire a foreign Aramite witch doctor worship a named Balaam to curse the people. And then once they're cursed, we'll attack them. That was the idea. He pays Balaam a fee to curse them. And Balaam shows up and, went and goes to curse. And it doesn't work out well at all. When he opens his mouth to curse, nothing comes out except a blessing, which surprises Balaam and surprises Balak. They try this three different times. And now this guy that was paid to curse is actually blessing the people. So now not only are these people not cursed, they're actually blessed, which is a real problem. That is the basics of the story. Let me show it to you in some snippets. It's four full chapters. I'm picking and choosing so I can give you the idea of the story. Next slide. So Balak said, a people have come out of Egypt and they cover the pace of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you cursed is cursed. He's talking to Balaam, saying, please, come come curse these people. Keep going. So the elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. So he has a fee to divinate. They pay him the fee. He comes up to divinate, and then he just ends up blessing the people, which was a real problem. This is what happens. Next slide. And so Balak said to Balaam, what have you done? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but bless them. And he answered, must I not speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? Now, let's be clear about this. When Balaam says, I've inquired of the Lord, and he's given me something to say, who's he talking about? He's talking about his God. He doesn't know the Israelites' God. He doesn't even know they're called Israelites. He's calling them a people coming out of Egypt. He doesn't know anything about Israel, doesn't know anything about their God. He is a foreign Aramite witch doctor worshiper of Ramon named Balaam. So Balaam's inquiring of Ramon to get a curse. And then what's happening in this story is the living God of Israel is stepping over all of that and giving a blessing in his mouth. Why? Because God loves his people more than the rules. And what's happening in this story is that God is using a foreign Aramite witch doctor worshiper of Ramon to prophesy over his people, which leads to this question. Is God allowed to do that? By the way, if I ask you if God's allowed to do something, the answer will be... Yes. Let's practice that. Is God allowed to do that? Yeah. So in this story, God is using a foreign Aramite witch doctor worshiper of Ramon to prophesy over his people. Is God allowed to do that? Yes. Hmm. Why? Because God loves his people more than the rules. What's happening in this story is that God is breaking every rule we've ever created about who can be used by God and who can't. In this story, there's a talking donkey. 
There's a foreign Aramite witch doctor worshiper of Ramon. What you find out in this story is that God uses anything and anyone who's willing to be used to bless his people because God loves people more than the rules. And that's good news. Watch what happens. This happens three times. What happens? Now, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to divination as he had at other times. In other words, he figured out that this God is different and it's more fun to bless than to curse, so he didn't go back to divinating. Theologically, that's called repentance. He turned around. Watch what happens. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came on him and he spoke a message. What's happening in this story is the living God of Israel is filling a foreign Aramite witch doctor worshiper of Ramon with the Holy Spirit in order to allow him to prophesy over his people. Is God allowed to do that? But he hadn't prayed the sinner's prayer. He hadn't done our ritual. He hadn't been baptized. He hadn't done our discipleship courses. He hadn't went through some weird ritual where four older women are yelling unintelligible things over his head. (laughs) Hadn't done that. In this story, God is using a foreign Aramite witch doctor worshiper of Ramon to prophesy over his people. Why? Because God loves people more than the rules. That's why. And this works out not so well. Watch what happens. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam, as it would. He paid him to curse, and he blesses. That is not good. He struck his hands together and said, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you've blessed them now three times. Leave at once and go home. I said I would pay you well, but your Lord has kept you from being rewarded. Now, I want to make sure you're following me here. This leaves Balak in a conundrum. Not only are these people not cursed, they're now actually blessed. So Balak comes up with an idea. And that idea was, I I see children in the room, okay? So I'm going to change my language from what I normally would say. But I need you adults to read what I'm saying because it's part of the story. Balak throws an outdoor worship service to the Baal of Peor. The Baal of Peor was the god of fertility who received worship through public expressions of a certain fertility ritual. Come on. That, that's, yeah, that's worth a clap, flip. That, you don't, some of you don't look impressed by that. I thought that was pretty good, right? Some of you are like... So the Baal of Peor receives worship through this public display of fertility ritualing. And Balak tells the Moabite women, your job in life is to seduce the Israelite men into participating in the fertility ritual. And the idea is, is that maybe then their God will turn against them. That was the idea. And it worked. This is Numbers 25. Watch this. Next slide. While Israel was staying in Shittim, now, that's funny right there. I don't care who you are. That, that's funny. That's funny. Because <clears throat> when you give in to Moabite immorality, it can put your life in a world of... You know, <laughs> While Israel was staying in Shittim, we got to get that one in there when we're done. The men began to indulge in immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifice of their gods. People ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. The Lord's anger burned against them. 
This turns out her- horrifically. Everybody's ticked off. God's ticked off. Moses ticked off. Balaam's ticked off. Balak's ticked off. There's a talking donkey somewhere sulking. The whole thing turns into a disaster. And everyone starts overreacting. Balaam overreacts. Balak overreacts. Moses overreacts. Moses was given to overreaction. Moses killed a guy and hit him in the sand. He struck rocks. Moses' temper problem was his besetting issue. Moses wasn't perfect. No one is. God doesn't use perfect people. Moses had a temper problem. Moses overreacts. Here's the problem. Moses wrote his overreaction down. Here's the problem. Where did Moses write it down? In the Bible. Watch this. This is Moses' response to the Shittim incident. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants, any of their descendants, that's a lot of people, may enter into the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. God does not accept Moabites. I don't care if it's 10 generations from now. He won't get over the whole thing that happened at Shittim. God does not accept Moabites. Is that true? Yeah, don't think too hard about that. Ruth's a Moabite. David's a Moabite. That means Jesus is like 128th Moabite. God does not accept Moabites. They won't be welcome even in the 10th generation. Is that true? But it's in the Bible. My Bible says. Do y'all not believe the Bible around here? Be very, very wary of people who use the Bible like that. Sometimes the Bible is telling you what God said. Sometimes the Bible is just accurately telling you a story about what happened. It's not like God approved of the Shittim incident. It's not like God approved of any of that. It is an accurately recorded story that explains what happened. And Moses makes sure you remember. Watch what he says. He says, for they didn't come out to meet you with bread and water on your way from Egypt. They hired Balaam. Remember that guy? The son of Beor from Pithor and Aram to pronounce a curse on you. Right? Remember they did that? Remember? Next slide. Uh, However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. But he turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you more than the rules. Watch, now this, this became national law. Watch this. Do not seek a friendship with them as long as you live. So follow me here. If you're not allowed to be friends with Moabites, would you be allowed to marry them? No. This adds some stress to the Ruth story. Ruth's in the wrong place at the wrong time, married to the wrong dude, and now even the Bible says she's not welcome. (laughs) That's stuck. No one's ever been stuck like that. Watch what happens. This is back in the Ruth story. Watch this. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to Judah. Let's be clear. Judah is under what law? Deuteronomy 23. And Deuteronomy 23 says, who's not welcome? Moabites. And who in this story is a Moabite? Ruth. 
This is tension. This is tension. Watch what happens. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. In other words, you got to go back to Moab because you need men. And Moabite men marry Moabite women. Israelite men aren't going to marry Israelite women because we're not even allowed to be friends with you because the Bible says we're not allowed to be friends with you. And it's just not going to happen. And so it had to do with the Shittim incident, which happened a long time ago, and you had nothing to do with it, and it's highly unfortunate. But you have a Moabite nose and a Moabite accent, and we can't hide it. Uh, Israelite men can't even be friends with you, much less marry you. And so you'll probably end up being destitute if you come into Israel. That's going to be a real problem. So you need to go back to Moab because Moabite women belong in Moab. Now watch what happens. At this they wept. Of course they did. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye and Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Is Naomi the worst evangelist in the history of the world? Our God's not interested in you, Ruth. We know that because the Bible tells us so. You got to go back to Moab. Moabite gods love Moabites. Israelite God loves Israelites. It's unfortunate. That's just how it is. Watch Ruth's response. Bravest woman, bravest person, forget woman, bravest person in the entirety of the Old Testament. Watch this. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I'm going to go. Where you stay, I'm going to stay. Watch this statement. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Ruth, you're not paying attention? You have a Moabite nose, Moabite accent. The people of Israel aren't going to let you in because the Bible says you're not welcome. You can't go back. You can't go to, the Bible says. And we can't go change in the Bible because... That's dangerous. So, and it's unfortunate. It wasn't your fault. But you can't go back to Israel because Moabite knows Moabite accent. What do you do? Here's the thing. Here's what Ruth did. Ruth is saying, I'm going to choose to trust the character of the living God instead of the list of rules. I think if your God is 10% as nice as you are, Naomi, I think your God loves people more than the rules. And I'm a person, not just a Moabite. And I think your God will want to be my God. And I think your people will want to be my people. Yeah, but the Bible says you're not. I know, I, I know what the rules say. But I think God loves people more than the rules. And how moving is that? And we got to talk about this for a second. Do you realize that if Ruth took one step into Bethlehem, all it would have taken is one Bible-thumping literalist to draw a line in the sand and say, No! Moabite nose, Moabite accent, the Bible clearly says Moabites aren't welcome. Ruth, get out of Israel. If he would have done that, would he have been correct according to Scripture at that time? Yeah. But if he'd have done that, who would have never been born? David and then Jesus. 
So sometimes the people defending the Bible the most vehemently are the very people keeping God from doing what he's trying to do. Ruth challenged the notion of a love for people over being right about something. And here's the thing. I want to talk to the good-hearted people. If you're a Pharisee, there's nothing I could do to change that. If you would rather be right about an obscure verse in Leviticus than feed the poor, let me speak for the whole room. You're annoying, and we don't want to be around you anyway. I'm talking about good-hearted people who love Scripture, okay? Hello, my name is Shane. I love the Bible. I've given my life to studying it. I've given my life to communicating it. I really love it. But good-hearted people struggle with the tension of, I'm called to love this person, but there's something about this person that the Bible strictly forbids. So where does my call to love them violate Holy Scripture? Because I don't want to do that because I love it. And where does my respect for Holy Scripture violate my call to love that person? Does that make sense? And, we, and any good-hearted person struggles with that. Let me help you with that. We have a choice. We can either be right about the Bible, or we can do something more profound than that, and we can fulfill Scripture. To fulfill Scripture is simply to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And in so doing, we can fulfill Scripture instead of just being right about it. Think about Jesus. Did Jesus fulfill Scripture, or was he simply concerned with being right about Scripture? He fulfilled scripture. There's tons of examples. They, they bring him someone caught in the act of adultery. What does scripture say to do to her? Stoner. Does Jesus stone her? No. Why? Because Jesus loves her more than the rules. And if you're here and you're wondering about Jesus, and you're like, listen, let me summarize Jesus' entire message in one sentence. God loves you more than the rules. The rules say stoner, but we're not going to do that because I love her more than the rules. Jesus fulfilled scripture by treating her how he would want to be treated in that situation. If I was caught in adultery, I'd want to be let off the hook and then challenged to change my life. And that's exactly what he did to her. Jesus fulfilled scripture instead of simply being right about it. And the people Jesus offended were the people obsessed with being right about it instead of fulfilling it. If all you want to do is, fulfill, is, is be right about scripture, the next time your neighbor is working on Saturday, get your stones out because that's what it says to do. But you know and I know, we're not called to simply be right about it. We are called to fulfill it. And to fulfill scripture is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And because Israel treated Ruth that way, we are still here today. Which leads me to this question. Is there a group of people that comes to your mind who feel less than welcome in most churches because the Bible forbids something about their lifestyle choice? In this case, what did the Bible forbid about Ruth? Her race. God doesn't accept Moabites. The Bible forbidded Moabites. But is there, a, is there a group of people that feel less than welcome in our churches because the Bible forbids something about their lifestyle choice? Anybody just think of a group of people that just immediately pops to your mind or maybe it's been on the news a lot? And of course, who am I talking about? I'm talking about the gluttons. The Bible forbids gluttony 
The Bible says if you're given to too much food, it's better that you take a knife to your own stomach. The Bible forbids gluttony 25 times more than it does homosexuality. And so the unrepentant overeaters sometimes feel not welcome in our churches because the Bible forbids something about them. So if a busload of unrepentant overeaters showed up here next Sunday, and I'm not talking about one lonely fat dude either. I'm talking about a busload. I'm talking about if all of them came at once, you'd have to reinforce the floor sort of stuff. If a busload of unrepentant overeaters showed up here next Sunday, how should the church respond? Hi, you're welcome, I guess, as long as you know exactly where we stand on your lifestyle choice. Should Bayside Church put a stance about where it stands on gluttony on its website to let all the gluttons know before they get here where we stand on gluttony? Should we do that? Or should we ask, how would I want to be treated if I were them? Let's fulfill scripture. And fulfilling scripture is, hello, you're welcome. Please belong here. Please, and here's what we believe. We believe the Spirit of God is at work in everything in every way, and He has a better plan for all of our lives, but we're going to leave all the convicting and all the changing to the Holy Spirit of God because we believe that God is better at convicting than we are. So please come in, and when God moves you, God moves you, but you can belong here as long as you'd like before that. So let Bayside Church be the place where all the unrepentant overeaters of Melbourne know they're welcome. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Because I'm putting it down pretty thick. <laughs> we can either fulfill scripture or be right about it. How do you unstick your life? You choose to believe that God loves people more than the rules. And you choose to be people who fulfill scripture instead of just simply being right about it. This story gives us a lot of questions about where we are. Next slide. One question the book of Ruth addresses is, am I stuck with my lot in life or can I be empowered by a better choice? Ruth had every excuse at her disposal to not move forward and give up on life. What's been your excuse? Ruth had all the excuses. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong husband, wrong race. Even the Bible says she's not welcome. That's stuck. Next slide. At the end of the story, God uses Ruth as a part of a lineage that brings salvation to the whole world. And I don't want to assume you know something you don't know. Ruth is the 17-time great-grandmother of Jesus. Okay? In other words, you never know where taking the one next step changes everything for everyone. When Ruth came into Israel, was she changing her life? Yes. Did she? Oh, yeah. And she was quite, what would you call it, uh, proactive at it. She gets into Israel, and they're like, okay, we guess we'll let you stay. And she goes, okay, oh, look, a rich single man. That's me, right? And she follows him around. It says in chapter 3 that she waited till the middle of the night when he was drunk, and she crawled under the covers and uncovered his feet. <laughs> kinky, ooh, Boaz, nice toes, right? Like, there's lots going on in this story that was very proactive. And did she change her life? Yes, she did. But you know what else she changed? She changed everything for everybody. She's the reason we're still here today. It was two factors, her bravery and the kindness of the people of Israel to not focus on the rules, but focus on the love. And that moved the world. Next slide. So what's been your excuse? Heritage, DNA, it's just where I've come from, diagnosis, they won't approve. How many excuses can we think of to not move forward in life? There's four things that will stick your life. Next slide. Excuses, that'll stick you. If all you can think of is why you can't, it'll stick you. 
The second thing that'll stick you is living with other people's expectations in mind. I love that quote by Thomas Merton. How can you expect to arrive at your destination if you're on the road to another man's city? In other words, if all you consider is what other people want you to do, you can't be surprised when you arrive that you're where they want you to be. Now, if you never consider what other people think, that makes you a psychopath. But if you only consider what other people think, that will stick your life. Next one. Believing the wrong story will stick your life. The problem with Ruth was for her, the wrong story was in Deuteronomy 23. God won't accept me because of my race. And she had to believe a better story. She had to believe in the character of a loving God instead of the list of rules. Unforgiveness and bitterness will stick your life. No one had more of a reason to be bitter at life than Ruth. You imagine Ruth telling God about her life? Really? Wrong place, wrong time, wrong race, wrong gender, wrong husband. Even the Bible says I'm not welcome. That stuck. But she chose not to be bitter. And she chose to put her faith in the character of a loving God instead of a list of rules. So how do you unstick your life? Three things. One, you choose to believe that God loves people more than the rules. Two, you choose to be people who fulfill scripture and not just be right about it. And three, you take your one next step to Bethlehem regardless of where it might lead. You just keep waking up, saying yes to the possibilities, and you do the one next thing you know to do. That's what Ruth did. Which leads me to these questions. Next slide. Of the sticky things, which is your biggest hurdle? What are you struggling with right now? Are you willing to take your one next step to Bethlehem, regardless of any guarantee of where it might lead? Ruth had no guarantee. They could have killed her. They could have exiled her, which would have been a killing. They, they could have done a lot of things to her. They could have made her a slave because she was a foreign Moabite. But she didn't. She chose to change. I am not staying in Moabite. One, I'm not staying in Moab one more day. I am going with you. And she took her one next step, which leads me to this. What's your one next step? Maybe your one next step is spiritual. Trusting Jesus' version of your life story instead of your own. Maybe you've done that and maybe your next step is getting involved somewhere. Don't just sit on your butt waiting to go to heaven when you die. Maybe your next one step, maybe you're an atheist and your next one step is, all right, I'm going to step back and consider God might be real. And if that's your step, that is, we, man, that is awesome. Take the step. Maybe your next one step is vocational. Start your business. Oh, Shane, I just feel stuck in my job. I feel stuck in my job. I feel so stuck in my job. You ain't stuck. This is Melbourne. Plenty of customers. Start the business. What's the worst thing that can happen? It doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, you get to go back to the job you hate. When the worst thing that can possibly happen is already happening, it's nowhere but up. Maybe your next step is relational. Tell them how you feel. And be normal. Don't have your left eye twitch when you tell them. Don't say God said. I'm 41. I'm single. Sometimes women take that as a cue that God told them we're going to be together. But when they say it like that, it's like, it's a visceral. God told me we're going to be together. I immediately run. <laughs> it's like, what the heck? Like, say it in such a way that if the circumstances aren't perfect, you can still be friends and then maybe one day. Tell them how you feel. Like, what's the worst thing that can happen? She throws up in her mouth a little, you know? Hey, this is how I feel about you. Oh. Oh. Well, if she throws up in her mouth, 
At least you know. <laughs> Maybe your one next step is a text, a phone call, an email that says, a coffee that says, I forgive you. Dad, I forgive you. Mom, I forgive you. Business partner, I forgive you. Ex-husband, we're not doing this again, but I forgive you. Ex-wife, no way, but I forgive you. I don't know what your next one step is, but I know you can unstick your life by believing that God loves people more than the rules, by choosing to fulfill scripture and not just be right about it, and by waking up every day saying yes to the infinite possibilities God has for your life and take your one next step to Bethlehem. May you be people who do that. Until I see you next time, grace and peace, everybody. God bless.